Hey, this is Rob Dietz. This is Jason Bradford. And I'm Asher Miller. Welcome to Crazy Town, where we enjoy the day because there aren't many left. This episode was originally recorded early in 2020, before we knew much about the coronavirus. Hey guys, I want to start today's show by pulling a quote out from the greatest repository of human knowledge ever. Mm, Wikipedia? Close. Twitter. Mm, Oh, right. Nice. You're like our uh, executive, our chief executive. No better place to go to get erudite, well-thought-out, reasoned, evidence-based discussion. You're throwing into a, a tough area people who are actually listening to this podcast to, to get some information. Just just want to want you to proceed with caution here. Yeah. Um, no, so I, I really want to reference a, a tweet that was actually sent, directed to Richard Heinberg, who's a colleague of ours at yeah. Post Carbon Institute, one of the the kindest and most articulate people I know. And scholarly yeah. as well. Yes. So here's a quote. It's actually, it started because someone else quoted a piece that Richard had written. And the piece was called Systemic Change Driven by Moral Awakening is Our Only Hope. A lot of big words. Yeah, I know. Sorry about that. He's a smart guy, too. Okay. So the, the quote that this guy pulled from Richard said, Our core ecological problem is not climate. It is overshoot, of which global overheat is a symptom. Enormous amounts of cheap energy from fossil fuels enabled rapid growth and in turn led to population increase, pollution, and loss of natural habitat. Amen, Richard. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, something that we would stand behind and agree with. But the, the, someone else read that and replied, the relevant moral issues are global inequality, capitalism, colonization, racism, heterosexism, and misogyny. If the quote-unquote moral issue you name is quote-unquote overpopulation, you are feeding the logic of eco-fascism and offering up the planet as an excuse for mass murder. So stop. (laughs) Ouch. Well, I mean, uh, that person, I can agree with some of their moral issues, uh, clearly, but uh, wow, is is there a need to shut down the, the conversation here? Well, apparently. I mean, it's interesting that the reaction to a statement that we would sort of view as not innocuous, but right. but uh, but kind of a given, would have such a strong reaction. Oh, I, I had, um, th- this may have occurred prior to Twitter. This was a while ago, so hopefully I remember this clearly. But I had a conversation with a guy. I was living in Mendocino County, and I was pretty Where, active. Where's that? That's Mendocino. in California, in oh. Northern California, uh, north of San Francisco, a rural-ish area with with small cities and towns. Anyhow, there was a publication that I think was communist, socialist, communist, maybe. I'm not sure exactly, but I got a call from like the editor of this thing and he he heard me on the radio or something, figured out what I was doing and he was really challenging me and he was upset with me for talking about what I was talking about. And I think he thought I was some right wing nut job. And when we got to know each other, a little, there was no tweeting. We just talked on the phone. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> People do that? Yeah, we used to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, we got to know each other, and it was like we kind of agreed with each other. Like we realized, okay, we're, you know, we could get along. We're not evil. And it turned out really what it was, what this uh, person that was responding to Richard's tweet was like, he did not want the conversation regarding limits to 
deny like the proletariat what they're due. You know, <laughs> that sort right, of. So, so you, all right, let's see. So you're saying by you going on the radio and talking about the limits to growth, he's like, well, now the people, the have nots aren't going to get gonna their, get, their yeah. just desserts. Yeah. Yeah, well, he was concerned. Like, it's a, you know, well, if there's limits, then of course we can't distribute because there's not going to be enough to distribute or whatever, right? You know, and it would feed in then to right wing kind of thought. So he didn't want you to say it. He don't want to. He didn't. He first he was challenging me on some of the stuff, but then kind of agreed, but didn't like where it led. And well, I was like, I don't like where it leads either. Right. You know, it doesn't mean you can't talk about it. But it was, so yours, I kind of I understand the topics. I want to go back to Richard's, not Richard's tweet, but the tweet in response to the guy who tweeted Richard's non-tweet, uh, whatever yeah, Richard it was. Wasn't, Richard wasn't <laughs> tweeting. Richard right. was writing an article that got tweeted. For for anyone who thinks that they're <laughs> tweeting at Richard, just know Richard's really not checking his Twitter account. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, she or he, whoever responded, was saying stop it because you're feeding the eco-fascism. What, what are we talking about when we're throwing that word around? Well, let, let, let's give a little context first. Like, wh- why is that even a concern? It's a concern because we've been seeing really alarming incidents of terrorism. You know, we had uh, a, a shooter who who killed an ungodly amount of people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, a little bit before that, we had a shooter who went from Australia to New Zealand and and murdered many Muslims there. Mm-hmm. And, and in a mosque, right? Like went into a yeah. mosque, right? And and in both of those cases, and I think there there are other cases as well, both of these shooters had manifestos where they were proclaiming views that some would, would call. And in fact, the guy in New Zealand called himself eco-fascists, right? So like the the El Paso guy, this is something from his manifesto, quote, I just want to say that I love the people of this country, but goddamn, most of y'all are t- just too stubborn to change your lifestyle. So the next logical step is to decrease the number of people in America using resources. If we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can become more sustainable. And that, that shooter's name was Thanos? Yeah. Is that... Uh... <laughs> Just wants to start wiping out populations. Yeah, and then the New Zealand guy, you know, as I said, he called himself an eco-fascist and said there is no nationalism without environmentalism. Wow. Now, obviously, the, this El Paso guy. Both of these people are sick, sick human beings, right? And not to mention just logic challenged right. as well. Well, I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean, this El, this El Paso shooter. He's saying I can't get you guys to change your lifestyle. He actually did talk about consumption, overconsumption, and corporations contributing to that. But he's saying, hey, if I can't get people, if we can't get people to change their consumption, we're just going to have to have fewer, fewer people. people. But here he is intentionally targeting. He was targeting Mexicans coming over to shop at Walmart. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to deal with, with consumption, maybe not the, the Mexican Walmart shoppers. Yeah, maybe not the, the owners of Walmart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's probably, I'm, not, uh, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying there's a clear logical... Right. <laughs> He, he was looking for an excuse to go after after these people, right? Right. right. Well, I, I kind of want to step back and say, okay, you know, let's look up the let's look up fascism. Fascism is this the right term? And so um, there's this guy named Robert Paxton. He's a professor of social science at Columbia University in New York. So you know, pretty prestigious uh, locale. He's considered the father of fascism studies. So here's what his definition of fascism. 
quote, a form of political practice distinctive to the 20th century that arouses popular enthusiasm by sophisticated propaganda techniques for an anti-liberal, anti-socialist, violently exclusionary, expansionist, nationalist agenda. It's a lot of There's ists a lot in there. And the violently exclusionary is what yeah. stands out to me. And the New Zealand shooter talks specifically about nationalism, right? right. So b- believing kind of in a big state sort of perspective of things, a lot of a powerful, large, prestigious state. And the idea of, you know, using propaganda and rhetoric to to really, you know, engender those nationalist feelings, right? right? Bring your group together. And here's the thing, we are seeing, absolutely seeing the rise of fascism around the world. If you look at what's, ha- you know, what's happened in India with M- Modi um, against Muslims there, I think you can make a very strong argument that President Trump is doing the same kind of propaganda, anti-liberal, anti-socialist, exclusionary. Well, Mm -hmm. and you can see some amazing examples of this on a smaller scale. Uh, The one that comes to mind for me is here in our region in the Pacific Northwest, uh, Matt Shea, who uh, he's a, a state representative in Washington and the excellent podcast Bundyville, The Revenant, was the second season of the Bundyville podcast by Leah Satilli. Really goes into some depth on this guy, but uh, uh, he's basically trying to get a separatist movement of Christian white supremacist, violent, uh, you know, it kind of has its own little militia idea. And so you're, you're seeing it pop up. Well, was uh, that, is, that as, is that so much fascist? Or is that more of Christian, lib, you know, libertarian? Christian white libertarianism, you know what I mean? You know, I I don't know how to label all these things. I mean, it it definitely has that violent exclusionary and and anti-liberal, anti-socialist. So, you know, it kind of depends where you draw But it's not the big state. It's more of a... Yeah, it's interesting because in those cases, there are, I think, a lot of people who espouse right-wing views that are actually anti-federal government, right? right? They're they're more in that... They're not nationalists in that sense, but they're nationalists in the sense of... They want to effectively have their own nation. Right. right. They're a white nation. They're miniature federal (laughs) government. Right. Yeah. But I think we have to be honest that there is a troubled history, you know, looking at the environmental movement. The the, the reason I bring this whole thing up is that I'm concerned about is is a fear that I have as we see more of these situations and this kind of rhetoric on the far right. You'll see people on the quote-unquote left dismissing some of these arguments and saying that anyone who talks about, you know, limits of any kind are are racist, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I think we do have to acknowledge that there is some dark history yeah. to the environmental movement. Yeah. I mean, there's um the Madison Grant is a character of the early 20th century, for example, uh, protecting California redwoods he was into and the American buffalo. Uh, president, he was the president of the Bronx Zoo. He did some pretty lousy stuff. He was a, a serious eugenicist. Uh, wrote books about you know quote unquote race science. Uh, displayed a African tribal member kidnapped in a in a cage uh, uh, with apes. Oh, um, so really kind of said you know the Nordic race is this great thing and. So basically, he really uh, has inspired a lot of the sort of modern eco-fascist folks. They look back to that guy as really one of these founders. Yeah, and if you study your conservation history in the United States, you definitely come across Gifford Pinchot, kind of uh, first head of the Forest Service, I think was his... Yeah, very close with Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
thought of as a hero, lionized. Um, but he was a delegate to the first and second International Eugenics Congress in 1912, yeah. 1921. So you're right, this, this uh, history of, of racism in the environmental movement is real. I mean, it's, even the Sierra Club, like in recent times, I don't know how recent, but you know, I, I remember like in the 80s and 90s, I think there was controversies about people trying to take over the Sierra Club that had these kind of views, like at least local chapters, let's say. And there's, you know, there's a lot of messy accusations that, that I, I honestly am not in a position to be able to parse around some groups, environmental groups that did have talked about population, you know, issues as being anti-immigrant and having racist ties, you know, in terms of funding and, and other types of support. It gets messy because I think there have been accusations also thrown at people that who are not that. Yeah. You know? Well, everyone knows that Rachel Carson was uh, in favor of killing as many people as she could. She used to go around to state fairs and actually booby trap the Ferris wheels <laughs> so they would come off and go rolling down the, the Oh, path. just to like oh, yeah. reduce population. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, she was quite successful number of number of fairs at the time. Yeah, you know, all the all the Leopold was uh, into necrobestiality. <laughs> Wait. Necrobestiality? Oh, wait, so he was trying to preserve species just so he could fuck them later. Yeah, exactly. I think, oh, uh, I think it was a way to uh, prevent population increase. You're just, right. Uh, if, you, if, you keep it, yeah, if you keep it away from your own species. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've, uh, we've gone off the rails a little bit here. Rachel Carson, Carson took us off the rails. And Aldo Leopold, as far as we know, were good conservationists. <laughs> they weren't all uh, eugenic-supporting nut jobs. <laughs> No, and but there is there is a troubled history. Though. There's a troubled history, and I think that there's also been, in many cases, an overreaction, and and accusations made that are not actually based on people being racist or nationalist or or any of those things. And there's a real concern for me, which is you know throwing out the baby with the bathwater in a sense, right? I mean, if we if we're seeing the co option of some of these concerns, you know, concerns about overpopulation, concerns about biocapacity, the use of resources in unsustainable ways, climate change, these things. We're seeing those concerns being co-opted by the most extreme right-wing groups. There's a real risk of, of folks who find those views, right? Abhorrent, dangerous, things that have to be fought tooth and nail, there's a concern that they'll just dismiss those arguments yeah. outright, right? Yeah. Because they're associated with those people, right? Right. I think that's just because I think a lot of people who are ignorant actually about that there are real limits, right? It, 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 I mean, the limits to growth, growth came out, right? And it was widely, um, there was a lot of propaganda against the idea of limits and the environmental movement has kind of turned to sort of, you know, almost this eco-modernism perspective, touting, the ability for renewable energy and the right type of consumption can solve things. Of course, in other episodes, we've talked about how that just is absurd and not going to work. But you have this interesting situation where you're getting all these stories that say we can kind of have our cake and eat it too, that plays to, again, the, the, the liberal, the left-leaning folks who want to share resources, who want to protect people and nature. And so... They have a hard time accepting, I guess, like like the guy I talked to who is the, the communist, they have a hard time accepting that, okay, if there are limits, what does that mean? 
Well, I've got a, an example uh, of one of the kinds of stories you're talking about. It, it's out of Harper's Bazaar. The writer, Jennifer Wright, I, I, I'll give you guys a quote so you can uh, react to it. Uh, she wrote that if every member of the United States lived in an area with the population density of Brooklyn, New York, all 327 million of us could fit into New Hampshire And then as a parenthetical, she writes, as someone who lives in Brooklyn by choice, I can promise you it's quite pleasant. Yeah. I mean, this is this is what scares me is, you know, you're completely ignorant, maybe of the uh, eco footprint concept, the ecological footprint concept. If you think of these cities, they're this high density urban areas draw resources from 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 regions that are several hundred times their own area. So if you're living in yeah, this... where does she think her food is coming come, from? Exactly. Like the, everyone's uh, window garden? And where or? is your waste going to go to? It's not like you can just depopulate these rural areas. In fact, I wrote a report published by PCI, Post Carbon Institute, called The Future is Rural, where I actually argue that with energy descent, we're probably going to have to redistribute out of these huge mega cities into uh, more more rural areas where biocapacity can handle things more more for us. You know, where does food come from? Where does where does your waste go? Where does our energy come from? It's not really something that I think a lot of people understand or talk about, and they're energy blind. So that's sort of a false solution, in other words, and that's what scares me, is just promoting these. You know, we don't have to worry about these things because we can just put everybody in New Hampshire. Or well, I think there's, there's a, a couple of risks to that. One is, yeah, the danger if, if we're if we're sort of blind about these limitations and the reality of what we're facing and what's required to actually live sustainably on this planet and address climate at the the speed and the normity in terms of the response that we need to, to undertake, that we're going to pursue false solutions, right? Yeah. And when we pursue those false solutions, people will wind up being disappointed. We'll have lost time. Right. Treasure wasted precious and, limited resources right and then yeah. and set people up for a massive disappointment and then where one, do they run that's one risk <laughs> the the other um for me is that and and I j- just have to preface this by saying I'm a person a, a you know a white male of of enormous privilege saying this so i yeah. I, I have to recognize <laughs> to some degree that it's easy for me to say yeah do you know what I mean and and to criticize people who are pointing out, who are very, very strongly reactive to right-wing, racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant positions, I am not, I don't face as much threat right. as other people from those things. You can under, you can maybe put your, yourself in the shoes of the tweeter that we talked about at the beginning of the show. You can maybe understand the fear that leads to that kind of reaction, maybe. Of- I don't. Exp- I don't have to experience that. Although, when you look at some of the the eco fascist viewpoints, some of it points back to Jews being behind, you know, all of this stuff. It's it's the Jews that are trying to. There's this theory of displacement that they have. Yeah. So you actually see well, come, this in right wing circles. <laughs> Tell us about it. You know, what, what have you been doing, Asher? Yeah. So as a Jew, yeah, you know, the, I'm a little sensitive to yeah. to that. You know, this idea that that Jews are the ones with their their hands on the puppet strings. You know, of of this effort to displace white Christians. I'll just say right now, as a Jew, yeah. and a member of the Elders of Zion. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, George Soros, he's your buddy, right? He is totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, okay, we do have a plan. <laughs> we do have a plan. It's but it it doesn't entail AK forty sevens and in AR fifteens. Oh, that's that's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> no. no, I mean, so uh, on a serious note, it's easy for me coming from my position to point out these these limitations and, and concerns I have, but they're but they're real concern. And yeah. and my concern is this, which is that if we because we see those the people who are espousing eco fascist views or even worse, taking action yeah, being as terrorists, terrorists yeah. and you know other other things, if we dismiss outright these very real concerns about environmental limits about the fact that there's going to be migration of people as a result of climate change, and that's going to create lots of displacement and and situations where communities are going to be buffeted by you know floods of people coming in, yeah. because they've been displaced from some kind of natural disaster. And another, if we dismiss all those concerns outright, because we have some people on the extreme right who are espousing those views for their own disgusting beliefs to to promote those, and we don't talk about them. Or we tell people to shut up, right. you know, stop talking stop about it. this. Yeah, right. All we've done is is as these events become more and more common, right? And there's probably going to be more situations where we're hearing from from these extremists. We're leaving people who are struggling with these questions to turn to those people only, right? Because right. there's nobody else, right? You're at least talking about what there's my not concerns a, are. There's no more sane voice for the limits to growth, or right. Or looking at some equitable way to right. deal with these challenges. The, we've talked about shared sacrifice, where we all give up something in order to have right. uh, a livable society, livable environment. So I would posit, if you are really deeply concerned about the rise of eco-fascism, if you're concerned about uh, right-wing rhetoric and the, the growth of these positions, right. we need to actually be talking about these issues and and to own them because they are real issues and not leave it to them to own them. Yeah. Right. Become more literate in ecology and in energy and in resource issues and how those interact with societies and environmental change well, and what the real stresses could be. And how how would you as a instead of humanitarian perspective, as a more open human being to, to, to and willingness to to meet others who are different from you and accept them and love them. How would you handle this? You know, I think that that's what people need to think through rather than just dismiss people who are, because they have these abhorrent things and are willing to do violent, dismiss the dismiss some of their legitimate concerns. I also want to point out that if, if you are going to talk about limits to growth and energy descent you brought up earlier, Jason. Like the, the idea that society has to run on less energy than it does now. You can speak out about that, but you can also be speaking out against racism, against xenophobia. You know, don't allow the conversation to go to scapegoating. And I'd say whenever we encounter that, especially if if you happen to be some you know, Sherry, you were saying you're somebody who doesn't have to deal with feeling the racism directly. Mm -hmm. um, and Jason, you and I are in that same boat. Maybe it's even more incumbent right. to to go and say something right. when you see that happening, even if it's your your crazy Aunt Edna or whoever, uh, you know, espousing her nut job views, you got to say, no, that's not, you know, we're not going to uh, approach this with that scapegoat mentality. Right. And the other is that there's a lot of pushback on 
population as a as a concern, right? I mean, that's what that tweet was talking about. You cannot bring up population because the truth is, in in their view, you know, the real problem is due to the consumption of wealthy people, right? In Western quote unquote advanced nations, you know, in in, in the global north, and the reality is, it's a both, yeah, right, and so. The other responsibility I think those of us have when we come from the privilege of being less at risk, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also coming from a, a position where our consumption is higher, yeah. right? Is that we have to own that and work on that as well, right? Yeah. So we have to live this change that we're, that we're talking about. So that means speaking up about all these issues and having honest conversations with people about the nuance of these things because... If anyone says that they have an answer, they don't have an answer. It's not the fault of this person or that person. It's not going to be solved by this technology or that technology. We're going to have to figure out how to muddle through this unraveling together, right? And that means being humble about this. That means being honest about this. That means having open conversations with people about it and then calling out the shit that is absolutely unacceptable. And you know what it also means? It means you better get ready to be uncomfortable, and I don't mean like because it's getting hotter outside or even though that's part of it, 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 but it's about the uncomfortableness that comes with having conversations like you just mentioned. I mean, those are, you can't pretend that that's easy. No. Uh, there's only, I mean, we're such social animals. It's very hard to confront somebody or, or call somebody out or push a view that's not popular. Yeah. Um, and the last thing I would say to people is just just be careful when you go to the uh, the county fair and get yeah. on that Ferris yeah. wheel. Especially you, if the uh, carny is named Aldo Leopold. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel Carson's <laughs> granddaughter is there. <laughs> hey, to get more information or to stay updated whenever we put out a new episode, go to postcarm.org slash crazy town and make sure you sign up for our email list. So today's giveaway, if you uh, go and sign up, we will arrange to have one of your children intern for Matt Shea, the, uh, the, the, the legislator out there in Washington. Good luck with that. Yeah, and, and to help them cope with being in that situation, we have 100 doses of ecstasy. Because with ecstasy, you can really just kind of just get in and relate and feel love for anyone you're around. Did you just offer illegal drugs on our podcast? <laughs> I was going to say that we would send people Richard Spencer's address so they could uh, go to his house and throw flaming bags of dog shit at his door. <laughs> that would be much more cathartic, I think. Than, uh, as long as we don't have to process the flaming bags of, of dog poo. We'll outsource yeah. that. No, I mean, it's all compostable. That's right. www.postcarbon.org slash crazytown. <laughs>